Welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Dr. Martin Ulberg from It Is What It Is, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> what, what is it is what it is? I am not sure. Because I'm is thinking a, it is what it is, ain't. It is I a mean, 2000... are you sure? I, was there ever a show, It Is What It Is? No, it's a 2001 film directed and written by Billy Frolic. Oh, yeah, uh, yes, sure. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, Billy, okay. I, I didn't know the name of the, the... Yeah, Billy. Billy's It Is What It Is. It <laughs> Okay. I was thinking I now I, I remember Billy. I remember we shot that somewhere in in the in the heart of Hollywood. Uh, I was gonna say the bowels of Hollywood, but then I, I thought maybe I would think better against that, but then I just said it so it wasn't better anyway. But it was in this old rock and roll building we shot it is what it is. I remember I shot it with Farrah Forky. Uh she she was the star of Dweebs. That was back in Dweeb's time. But other than that, I'm a little clueless as to what I did. on it. You know you got me, David. Uh, it was a, a hit, a palpable hit. <laughs> well, I consider myself <laughs> successful then. But yes, uh, that movie, uh, it looks like it was released on September 13th, 2001. Uh-huh. So I think uh, America had other things on its mind other than running out to see Jonathan Silverman's latest film, unfortunately. But that's okay because, uh, you know, Stephen, you went on to bigger and better things after that, <laughs> including the Tobolowsky file. So, you know? That's right. I mean, that's right. Anyway, now, oh, Stephen, uh, you yeah. recently came to visit me here in Boston, Massachusetts. That was uh, remarkable. It I, was remarkable. That is true. I really enjoyed uh, our time hanging out together, catching up, talking about the future of the Tobolowski Files and other uh, related ventures. And uh, I, I kind of wanted to ask you, like, what, what uh, happened while you were here? Who held down the fort back at the, the house of Tobolowski? <laughs> Well, I have to tell you, David, times have changed. Uh, the old days, whenever Ann and I had to travel together somewhere, we had to get an unemployed actor or friend to watch the boys. But the boys have grown up. Robert's 22. He's working in a laboratory at UCLA, fulfilling my old dreams of wanting to be a scientist. William pretty much uh, took care of all of the janitorial duties uh, which did not include washing dishes or cleaning towels, but he fed all the animals. All the animals were alive. And when I got home, William, uh, I walked around and did the check of the perimeter of the property, made sure there were no fires burning. 
And I stood in a spot in the backyard where I remembered a conversation I had with little William when he was four years old. And he asked me at that time, what is the difference between a person and a cat? And I told him blue jeans and a license to drive. I know that's an oversimplification. There are others. But cutting to the nib of his question, I think William was trying to ask me, what is it that separates mankind from the rest of the animals? And I thought about it carefully, and there were a lot of different answers that drifted through my brain over the years. There was the classic, man is the only creature that creates language. I remember that was a good one. But I wasn't really sure about that one anymore after listening to a mockingbird outside of our house imitate every bird in the neighborhood, including a car alarm. So it was learning to make sounds for a purpose, and that is a pretty good working definition of language as far as I could figure out. I read an article where they did an experiment in North Carolina with baby birds. And they put a nest of hatchlings in a soundproof room to see if they would still sing. And they couldn't. Apparently, their song had to be learned. And this was further corroborated when the baby birds were released. And they finally learned that they could sing. Another answer I could have given William is that man is the only animal that creates tools to do specific jobs. Now, this is different than the monkeys finding sticks to eat termites. Man can invent air conditioning if they live in a place that's too hot and winter homes in Florida if they live in a place that's too cold. But not only can they make different tools, but man can build machines that can make different tools. And if you add computers to the design end of things and robots to the assembly line, then you have machines building machines that can build machines that can build other machines. And you have the beginnings of a Terminator movie. In the end, I backed away from all those definitions. And I just told William that man was the only animal that asks why he's different from other animals. And that answer seemed to work for a while. But that was before I got back from visiting you, David, and visiting my friends in Maine. I don't know if you recall, but to get the cheap fares, Anne and I had to buy plane tickets way in advance. And so we ended up vacationing during the end of a hurricane. As we sat in that kitchen in Maine, sipping coffee while half of the state had lost its electricity, my friend mentioned how astonishing the rain had been. She said that the power of the wind had uprooted trees and flooded some communities, and her eyes lit up with wonder as she said, It was amazing. And then William's question came back to me. I had a new answer. The main thing that separates man from all of the animals is the ability to be inspired. Now, you can argue my cats are inspired by food, sleep, and occasionally toes under the covers. Human beings can be inspired by anything. That inspiration is boundless. It can take the ocean and turn it into a poem. It can take the life of a man and turn it into philosophy. It could take the wind of a hurricane and turn it into entertainment on the news channels a charity for those who had lost their homes, or just a sense of awe sipping coffee in a kitchen in Maine. Inspiration is only half the equation that makes a man a man. It's the invisible half. Its visual counterpart is creativity. The two always go together. 
All humans have that seed in them to feel inspiration and to react creatively, just like the baby birds in North Carolina. We only learn it when we're released into the world. I remember with fondness one of my first bursts of creativity. I was in fifth grade, and Mrs. Middleton, our teacher, had assigned us to do a report on the relatively new state of Alaska. I was still on the fence about how I felt about Alaska. I was excited at the idea that the United States could just keep growing by adding new states, but at the same time, it would also mean I may have to do more homework papers writing about them. But I decided I would give Alaska a chance and really commit myself to the report. The report was not so much the creative part of the project. Back then, it was not uncommon to copy a report directly from the World Book Encyclopedia. The students who did the best were not so much good writers as good scribes, who had the patience to copy paragraph by paragraph from the World Book. I remember the year before, we had to do reports on Kansas. Our fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Norton, told us we had to read our reports out loud. The first three students got up and read the identical report. By the time the last boy got up and read about the brave man who survived the tornado in Wichita, the entire class could recite by heart how he got carried for a half a mile and put down safely in the middle of a cornfield. I was not a particularly good student. Never had the patience to copy my reports from the world book. Usually, I just made them up. Sidebar. I have been accused on the Tobolowsky files of taking creative license with some of the facts. I have not. In fact, I think one of the reasons I haven't is that I'm still doing some kind of penance for my early life. There was the impromptu speech I gave one Friday night in the synagogue. I was eight years old, and I interrupted the rabbi's sermon to talk about what I was grateful for. I said I was lucky to be alive because our family was in a terrible car accident. My mother was in the hospital with a broken back. and My father was in a coma. Both of them were in the audience at the time, <laughs> sliding under their chairs. <sighs> I did a report on Judaism in the first grade, in which I said the Jewish Bible, the Torah, when unrolled, was over a mile long and could circle the entire school twice. I was especially proud of my fourth grade report on Texas pioneer Moses Austin. I didn't feel the need to crack a reference book at all. I just made up his life story out of whole cloth. I had to read this report in front of our school on parent-teacher day with my mother present. I roughly based my paper about his life on my family and things I'd seen on Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. I said that Moses Austin was born in Pennsylvania. His family was poor, but he loved to read. <laughs> like Davy Crockett, he wanted to head south for Texas. When I got to the part where Moses Austin actually began his journey— I had made up the fact that he brought 200 settlers with him. Who knows? Maybe he did. But while I was reading the report at the assembly, I felt like that part of the story with the settlers needed more oomph. So on the spot, I extemporized that Moses Austin led 10,000 settlers to Texas. Thank God I didn't have a chance for another rewrite, or he may have ended up like a different Moses altogether. In the car on the way home... Mom asked me where I got my information on Moses Austin. Keep in mind, this was around 1960. There was no internet. There were only three channels of television, four if you count the one that always showed the Three Stooges and cartoons. I said innocently, 
I think some man told me. Mom looked over at me and said, Do you know what man? I said, I'm not really sure. Mom looked straight ahead at the road, then very gently suggested, In the future, Steppy Doors, before you do a report, you should know who the man is that tells you things. I told Mom next time I would use the encyclopedia. When Mrs. Middleton assigned the Alaska report, it was my chance to redeem myself. I would use the world book just like all the girls in my class did, the ones who got the ones on their report card. Note, in Texas at this time, the prevailing grading scale was one to four. One was for very good, four was for absolute failure. It wasn't until much later the invention of the gasoline engine and news of the discovery of electricity that Texas switched over to the A through F system of grading that most of the speaking world was using at the time. When I got home, I pulled the world book out, the one marked A. I went to Alaska, and I started writing. I copied reports on Alaska's population, noting the population of several key cities. I copied the paragraph on Alaska's mineral deposits and where they were located. I felt the fire of plagiarism burn brightly. I had never written so well in all my life. This was the first time I had a real sense of achievement. I kept copying. In the end, I had a 55-page report. It was massive. This was much more extensive than the reports on Kansas that the girls copied last year. I had trouble putting it in one of the standard-sized folders we bought at Skillern's Drugstore. I put my report in a yellow folder. I bent down the brads. This was my way of saying, done, because it was hard to unbend those brads, add pages, and bend them back again. I placed the finished work carefully at the center of my desk and stood back to admire it. It was truly an achievement. It was the hardest I had ever worked on a project in my life. I still wasn't exactly sure who the man was who told me what to write, but I knew World Book knew, and that was good enough for me. But as I stared at the tome, I felt a vague sense of dissatisfaction. It didn't really have a cover, a title, an introduction that said, This is a monumental work. And I didn't want to just freehand the title with my name like I usually did. This was special. It required a stencil. I carefully measured the front of my folder. I used pencil to lightly sketch out the block letters, Alaska. I stood back and looked at the pencil lettering and thought I was ready for phase two. Magic markers. Back then, magic markers were not something that was available to everyone. They didn't come in a 20-pack and variety of colors at the office depot. They only came in black, and only the teachers and occasionally truly exceptional students like Claire Richards were allowed to use them, and then only with the windows open because of the fumes. I begged Mom to get me a magic marker for my report. She looked at me and without saying a word, stopped our family's dinner preparations and made a special trip to Skillern's. When I heard her car driving into the garage, I ran into the kitchen. She handed me a small brown paper bag. I looked inside. Could it be possible? A magic marker of my very own. I ran to my room. I closed the door for absolute privacy, opened up the windows so I wouldn't be asphyxiated. I removed the top of the marker, and I carefully started filling in the stencil. 
When I finished, I stood back, and there on my yellow folder, with black block capital letters, it said, Alaska. But there was still something wrong. The word looked so unattached, so barren on the cover. It needed something more. I had an idea. I grabbed my stencil. I checked it out. Yes, there were lowercase letters as well. I went back to work with my pencil and then the magic marker. Mom was calling me for dinner. I yelled, I was almost done, almost done. I stood back and I saw the results of my labor. It now said, Alaska, the 49th state. I went to eat dinner. When our family moved into the house when I was four, Mom and Dad hired a handyman to open up a portal from the kitchen to the den. This way we could all watch television at dinner time and not have to speak to one another. But tonight I was not interested in Steve McQueen or Johnny Yuma the Rebel. I was ruminating on my report. The cover was still wrong. I got an idea. It was bold. It was the type of inspiration I had never had before. A great report required a great cover. Words alone could not tell a story as big as Alaska. I needed art. After dinner, I copied an outline of the map of Alaska from the encyclopedia. I transferred it with tracing paper over to the cover of my report. I outlined the state in magic marker and then used colored pencils to draw in the mountains and the forests. Looking back, This is probably where the train first came off the tracks. I used the Moses-Austin approach as to where I thought the mountains and forests were. I just drew them in where it seemed like they should have been, and then I mixed it together with random patches of yellow pencil to signify ice. The results were disastrous. My picture was completely unrecognizable. Because Alaska was not symmetrical, it looked like I had drawn a liver on the front of my report. I panicked. To indicate what the map was supposed to be, I drew a picture of a ptarmigan on the cover, which I learned was the state bird of Alaska. The bird didn't help. Through an unfortunate mixing of metaphors, the bird was way too big beside the mountains. It looked like Rodan, the giant pterodactyl from the Japanese movies, was flying over Fairbanks. I needed something on the other side of the cover for balance. I decided to freehand a picture of William Seward, who had purchased Alaska in 1867. I was not a good artist, so I just made sure he had a jaw and eyes. I covered the rest in hair and put him in a black suit. Since he was unidentifiable, I had to write William Seward under his picture, which made me, for balance, write Ptarmigan under the bird. I stood back to view what I had done. The cover of my once great report looked like a vegetarian pizza. I figured if I was in for a penny, I was in for a pound, so I finished the cover by writing... Alaska, under the map of Alaska I had drawn. I went to show Paul, who was busy doing his homework. I asked him what he thought about the cover. He looked it over, looked back at me, and said, Stevie, you got a lot going on here. Maybe it'd be better if it was a little less. I was embarrassed. I knew my brother was right. I knew that I had spent most of the night foolishly trying to balance the void. There was no excuse. My brother had told me that in arithmetic, anything multiplied by zero is still zero. My Alaska report would always be a zero, even if I had the best cover in the world. But it was too late now to get another folder. I would just have to turn this one in. 
I sat in class the next day with my yellow folder on my desk hidden under my textbook. I decided to show it to Claire Richards, who sat in front of me. She looked at it and politely raised her eyebrows and nodded and said, It's big. Mrs. Middleton called for the reports. We handed them forward. My cheeks burned as I watched the folders go to Mrs. Middleton. She casually looked through them and stopped at mine. She looked at the cover. She turned it sideways and looked at the cover a second time. Mrs. Middleton noted the heft of the report in her hands and looked over at me and smiled. I don't remember much about Alaska, but that day I did learn why grown-ups were the only ones who handled the magic markers. They were aware of the dangers of a permanent mistake. A week later, I got my report back. I opened my folder. I got a one. Mrs. Middleton wrote, Good work, Stephen. That's when I learned my second lesson. Redemption isn't always based on merit. Well, a half an hour later, an SOS was heard. Signal weak, but still the voice was brave. In the shark-infested waters, her plane went down that night in the blue Pacific to a watery grave. There was a third lesson in my misguided Alaska project. Creativity is not the same as beauty. The process is different from the result. It could be messy. Ask any obstetrician. When we listen to the opening of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, we hear the pure sounds of what could be the beginning of time and space. We hear vastness and majesty, fear and beauty. However, we almost never connect the rapture of Ode to Joy with the fact that Beethoven was a pathological slob. From looking at letters written by his contemporaries, he was a candidate to be on a segment of Hoarders. He was lucky that he had some money, so whenever one of his residences got too filled with trash, he just moved into another one. During the course of his life in Bonn, Germany, he left a string of deserted apartments filled with uneaten food, stacks of music manuscript paper, spilled ink, melted candles, dirty clothes, and abused pianos. The mangled pianos were not because of his temper. It was not because of any lack of care he had toward the instrument he helped define. It was part of the mess of creation. Because he was deaf, Beethoven had to come up with unique methods of composing. By the looks of many of his abandoned pianos, his go-to technique was to bite into the wood above the keyboard so he could feel the vibrations of the notes through his skull. Occasionally, he would remove the legs from his piano and place the key bed on the floor. That way, he could lie on his stomach and feel what he was writing through his body. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you have to chew on pianos to be a genius or to be a hoarder to be Tennessee Williams. That's how art gets a terrible reputation, by people affecting the appearance of creativity without offering the product of it. Many of the letters and comments I get from writers, actors, singers, directors, and chefs center on the great concerns that the path they're on seems dangerously chaotic and with no clear direction. It recalls a story of a different sort. In 1887, 
an expedition was sent deep into the heart of Africa and found traces of the existence of a previously unknown creature. It was heralded as a lost species. Some even speculated it could be the elusive unicorn. In 1901, another expedition was sent and found what we would come to know as the Okape. By accident, they stumbled upon it in the densest, darkest jungles of the Congo. One man was startled by the appearance of this animal that seemed to be part giraffe, part antelope, and part zebra. As the story goes, he gasped and said, My God, it's a monster! To which the head of the expedition coolly responded, Yes, unless that's what the beast looks like. For those currently wrestling with their own creativity... I know it's little comfort, but try to heed the words of the perhaps mythical expedition leader. The creature we call creativity that hides in the darkest shadows. The thing that is part chaos, part vision, part obsession, isn't a monster at all. Maybe that's just what it looks like. I was recently working on Teenage Wasteland, a new film by director Mike Ott. This is a sequel of sorts to a strangely riveting film, Little Rock. We were shooting in a place that would have been proud to be considered the middle of nowhere, so at least it could be distinguished by something. I can't even give it that. It was an area so windswept that the only good thing I could say about the place was that the trash got blown to surrounding cities. The landscape that remained was cactus and a dozen or so rusty water heaters that seemed to be strewn every few hundred yards. Side note, if your water heater escaped... It was probably headed toward the outskirts of Palmdale, California. The bad news is, it didn't survive the journey. I only bring it up to provide closure. In between shots, Mike and I sat in the front seat of a wrecked 1994 Lincoln to escape the wind and the sun while the crew set up the camera for the next scene. Mike was dressed like a bandit from the Old West. He had the brim of his hat pulled down for protection from the sun, and his bandana pulled up over his nose and mouth as protection from the unrelenting wind and dust and microscopic rust particles that were coming from the pollinating water heaters. We sat for a few moments of numb silence as the wind howled. My mind drifted to that morning when I arrived on location. Mike welcomed me to nowhere with a warm smile and told me he thought we wouldn't use the script thought that was different. He asked me if that was okay, and I said, well, I guess so. You're the one who wrote the script. Is it okay with you? For the first half of the day, we started whittling away at thin air to tell a story that used to be in the script. We made up dialogue. We made up scenes. It was a strange but exciting way to work. It was a little like Curb Your Enthusiasm, except with fewer takes and shooting in the belly of hell. When you work this way, at least you're not afraid of blowing a line. Now, several hours later, in the car, Mike looked over to me, pulled down his bandana, shrugged his shoulders, and said, he always seemed to find scripts inadequate when he started shooting. The story seemed to grow in unpredictable ways, and he felt like he always got closer to the truth when he let them go where they had to go. The wind rocked the car, and Mike said, the hardest part of making films the way I make them is I never really know what I have or how they're going to turn out. And that's every day. I started today with no idea of what would happen. And then when we have a moment to rest like now, I realize I have no idea what will happen tomorrow or the next day or the next. It's overwhelming. When I get to the editing room, 
It's like carving a path through the jungle. I just don't know. I was thinking that even in the middle of the creative process, the uncertainty of the creative process still remained. I reminded Mike of a wonderful line from E.L. Doctorow, that life is like driving a car at night. You never see any further than your headlights, but you could still make the whole trip that way. I think creativity works by the same process. Just like driving at night, you have to realize that sometimes you're going to get lost. Sometimes you're going to end up in places you never expected. Instead of panicking, just remember, that's why God invented the all-night diner. Creation. It's a big topic. It's what all of Hollywood is about. It's what chef elimination shows are all about. I guess the most famous story of creation is the beginning of Genesis. Everybody knows that one. It's the story about how God created the world in six days and took the seventh day off. It was one of the first stories I ever learned when I went to Sunday school. When I was little, I imagined that God said, let there be light and the sun was created. I never thought about it much after that (laughs) until last year. In Hebrew class, we were slogging our way through the first chapters of the Bible, and I realized something that anybody who knows the Bible already knows, that when God said, let there be light, he's not referring to the creation of the sun, the moon, or the stars. Those were created on the fourth day. So, what was the light that was created on day one? This little verse became very interesting to me. What light was created? More to the point, since this was written before there was anything that resembled science, what did the authors of Genesis think that light was? The answer is not so easy to get a handle on. It's as hard as trying to grasp the scientific questions relating to the first moments of the young universe and what existed before the Big Bang. The question of the light of the first day has been a subject of commentaries, poetry, and is a cornerstone of a branch of Jewish mysticism called Kabbalah. Kabbalah was born from a very different sort of battle between religion and science. This one was going on during the Middle Ages, when science was not really what we would even recognize as science today. Back then, just about every discipline was based on Aristotle's teachings from almost a thousand years earlier, about 350 B.C., Aristotle shaped many of the ideas of the Western world for two reasons. One, he was Alexander the Great's teacher, so everywhere Alexander had conquered was exposed to Aristotle. Aristotle had accessibility. He was an ancient version of the Internet. Secondly, Aristotle was smart. People were confident that he understood everything and were willing to defer to him on almost any subject from plants to animals to physics to religion. His methods of philosophy and examination were used to parse every idea. And back in the 12th century, a great Jewish writer and philosopher, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, or Maimonides for short, felt that he could use Aristotelian reasoning to explain all of the truths of the Bible. He was brilliant, and his ideas had a great following. 
Another group of rabbis thought this approach to religion was destructive. If you could explain everything in the Bible as a set of easy-to-grasp, science-like facts, there would be no mystery. Spiritual truth is like beauty. It works best when there's shadows and light. They came up with a set of writings called the Zohar. The Zohar tried to reaffirm the questions of the Bible instead of trying to answer them. When it comes to the light of the first day, the Zohar speaks in mystical terms that maybe could only be understood by Stephen Hawking. It describes the moment of creation as a blinding spark of darkness. The commentary that follow explains that the initial burst of the creative was so overwhelming it could not be seen. Quoting from Seraph Yetzirah, 2.6, that's for those of you who like references, and I quote, Out of chaos he formed substance, making what is not into what is. He has hewn enormous pillars out of ether that cannot be grasped. Rabbi Eliezer said this primordial light enabled one to see from one end of the universe to the other, but it was hidden away by God on the first day so that the wicked could not use it. It still exists, unseen and precious, and is only accessible to the ordinary man through prayer or meditation. The rabbi's description of the light of the first day, of making what is not into what is, is a perfect description of every play I've ever worked on. It also describes the process of making a film or a television show and more. It could be a good working definition of all of our creative efforts, no matter how insignificant they may seem at first. The singular most creative moment in my life happened when I least expected it. It wasn't opening night on Broadway. I wasn't running to meet Bill Murray on the first day of shooting Groundhog Day. In fact, it had nothing to do with anything related to my career. I was 25. I was living in Dallas with my girlfriend, Beth. It was late afternoon, and she had sent me to the grocery store to buy fixings for dinner. I bought chicken breasts, Italian-Swiss colony wine, and some mangoes. Mangoes were a new fruit back then. People didn't quite know what to do with them. I had no idea how to tell if a mango was right. I held it up in my hand and started to shake it to see if it rattled or sloshed when an older man wearing blue jeans and a black short sleeve shirt came up to me. He put his hand on the front of my cart. I thought, huh, that's odd. I grew up with the belief that somebody else's grocery cart was sacrosanct. It's like someone else's belt. You don't touch it except by invitation. He looked into my cart and admired my cargo. He said, I see you have mangoes. I tried to press onward, but he wouldn't move from in front of my cart. He looked at me steadily and said, Mangoes are from South America. I've always thought of them as one of the most exotic of fruits. And with that, he started to cry. I was thinking, this is not good. I knew that there were a hundred good reasons to cry on any given day, but mangoes would never be one of them. I figured he was senile, and maybe he would go on his way if I gave him one of my mangoes. I reached down into the cart, and that's when I saw that he was holding a forty-five caliber handgun behind his back. In that single moment, my brain, my heart, my soul went completely blank. I knew I was dead. I stood up with the mangoes in my hand. He looked into my eyes. He must have seen the sudden emptiness. 
In my expression of nothing, he knew that I knew. In an instant, he whipped the forty-five around and put it in the middle of my forehead. With tears running down his face, he began speaking to me with a strange mixture of grief, self-pity, and satanic possession. The man sobbed and said, I don't know why I picked you today. I don't know why. I contracted brucellosis, a cattle disease from South America. It leads to suicide or homicide. And I was thinking, just my luck, today it had to be homicide. I looked beyond him, and that's when I noticed for the first time that the entire store was empty. Empty! I must have been too busy shaking the dang mangoes to have noticed the mass exodus when a crazy guy with a gun came in. I was scared. He pressed the forty-five harder into my forehead, and then remarkably, of all of the possible things I could have thought of, I thought of Chad Everett on the television show Medical Center. It was very popular back then, and there was an episode where he had to deal with a similar situation. The advice he gave on TV was to keep the gunman talking. Well, I didn't know how to do that, so I started talking. And what followed was my moment of pure creation. I told him how he reminded me of my father, which he didn't. And then I launched into several loosely related monologues, which I remembered from the television show. There was a lot of father-son conflict between the brash young Chad Everett and his dad, the head surgeon, James Daly. There were a lot of speeches about responsibility and the sanctity of life, the dangers of infection while visiting a hospital. I told my once and future murderer that my dad was a little taller than he was. He was a doctor. I was never smart enough to be a doctor, and I thought that disappointed him. In fact, I was always a disappointment. It seemed like nothing I ever did was good enough for my dad. Nothing I ever did was right enough for him. He saw me as nothing but a loser. I almost summoned up tears as I said all I ever wanted was for my dad to love me. But we always fought. I just wanted to sit down with him once and for all and tell him how much he meant to me and how much I looked up to him. I was talking at a million miles an hour. I hardly stopped to take a breath before I launched into another monologue. The man still had the gun pressed into my forehead. I kept talking, and I asked him why love had to be so hard, why a son and a father couldn't sit down at a table and just say, you're fine, I love you the way you are. And what made the surreal so absolutely real was that while I was telling the amazing and quite fabricated story of my father, I was looking out the big front window of the store. Outside in the parking lot, I saw police running back and forth, crouching under the big window, carrying rifles and wearing bulletproof vests. I saw a television news truck in the parking lot with the back of a newscaster's head doing a report live from the scene. I heard a helicopter bearing down from above us, and finally an ambulance pulled up. The back doors flew open, and paramedics pulled out a stretcher and a body bag. And while I was talking... I was thinking quite calmly, hey, stretcher, body bag, one of them is for him, one of them is for me, which is which? Wow. After 45 minutes of nonstop lather, I felt the adrenaline start to wear off. I knew I was in trouble. He still had the gun on me, and in this situation, flop sweat could be fatal. My brain was screaming, time to go, do something. So I did. Escape seemed impossible, so I did the only thing I could think to do in the moment. I invited him over for dinner. 
I recognized this was not a particularly good plan. I said, excuse me, do you know what time it is? I have to get back and start dinner. Hey, are you doing anything now? I mean, we're having a good discussion here. We're getting all these things worked out. Why don't you come on over? We'll have some chicken. We'll drink a glass of wine. We'll eat the mangoes. Let me give you my address. I didn't have a pen and paper. And I asked, "Uh, do you have a pen on you? In what would be absolutely unbelievable if it were portrayed in a movie, the man, holding the gun to my forehead, reached for a ballpoint pen in his shirt pocket. He handed it to me. I took the pen. I tore off a bit of brown paper from the bag where the mangoes were. I thanked him and started to write. Unfortunately, I was so tired and so scared, I wrote down my real address. I handed it to him. Out of the whole ordeal, I remember the next moment being the scariest. After I gave him my address and told him I had to go to get the chicken in the oven, I pushed my cart past him. He stepped aside, and then I felt him stick the gun into the back of my head. And a little voice inside of me said, Don't turn around. Don't turn around. Whatever you do, don't turn around. I didn't. I kept walking, eyes front. I had no idea what would happen next. I didn't know it, but a SWAT team had sneaked into the back of the store a half an hour before, sometime during my medical center monologues. They crept down the aisles adjacent to us and had positioned their rifles at us through the food the entire time. Ahead of me, I saw a display of Pepsis at the end of the aisle. The voice inside of my head said, get around the Pepsis, get around the Pepsis, and you could run. I didn't have to. As I rounded the corner, the SWAT team jumped over the huge shelves of food and tackled my potential dinner guest. They had him hogtied in eight seconds. He had ties on his ankles, knees, arms, and hands. They carried him out of the store on their shoulders like he was a roll of carpet. I walked with my shopping cart in the absolutely deserted store to the checkout counter and waited patiently with my wallet in my hand. A policeman walked up to me and said, Hey, buddy. You could just go home. I left. I got home and Beth said, Well, you took forever. Where were you? I said, Well, I was just held hostage at gunpoint. And she said, Well, it took a long time. I said, I know. I know it does. The hostage thing takes time. I'm starving. That night we ate our chicken and mangoes. And I still will always remember that day as the only time I left a store without paying for my groceries. As time passed from that day so long ago, I realized it was important for another reason. Like my mother said in the car after I gave my report on Moses Austin, that I should always know the man who told me things. I think that maybe I met him in the store that evening, and he invisibly whispered advice to me and reminded me of Chad Everett. And somewhere between the mangoes and an invitation for dinner, in a blinding flash of darkness, He told me the light I was looking for was somewhere beyond the Pepsis. There's a beautiful, beautiful field Far away in a land that is fair Happy landings to you, Amelia Earhart Farewell, First Lady of the Air that was The Light of the First Day, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the Internet this week? Sure. Uh, 
There's a story I wrote specifically for Kindle, and it's called Cautionary Tales, and you could find it at stephentobolowski.com. You won't find it anywhere else on the internet, just at Kindle. So, And you could read it on any device. I believe you've told me uh, it it reads on a computer, a, a phone, anything. You just download the app for free, correct? Yep, that's right. Um, so check that out at stephentobolowski.com. You can find every episode of the show at uh, tobolowskifiles.com. And uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you guys later. Adios. Happy landings to you, Amelia Farewell, First Lady of the Air. Farewell, First Lady of the Air.